Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Timothy Scriven. Timothy is an aspiring author and a PhD student in political economy. Timothy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you for your uh, generosity in having me. It's lovely to be here. Let's uh, open real quick, if you will, uh, by telling us a bit about what you're working on in your PhD. You know, have you ever noticed that some people own things? That's (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. I have noticed that some people own things. It's very, it's very odd. You know, you can own, own something w- without even knowing that you own it. Okay, like what? Well, say, for example, you just inherited your grandfather's beach house, but you're unaware that your grandfather had just died, as a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Or you could own... Oh, you could be some kind of property mogul who owns so many houses that he's forgotten about one of them. So there's something very interesting about ownership because there's no sort of golden thread that extends between the heart of the owner and the owned. Nothing that that ties that together. Yet some people think that there is a sort of a moral connection um, and then that moral connection is about more than just law. Some people think that you own things almost intrinsically. Mm-hmm. And I find that very interesting and I've been tracing the history of concepts of ownership and the history of attempts to justify ownership because people put a lot of stake in ownership. People say, for example, um, because I own this food and it's mine, I shouldn't be obliged to give it to this starving person, for example. So people treat the concept of ownership as this quite thick rich thing that can be used to rebut others' moral claims. And I want to know more about the history of that and the philosophy that people deploy to try and justify it and the way that that's interacted uh, with certain factors in in what's sometimes called uh, macroeconomics. So looking at the government management of the economy and how concepts of intrinsic ownership Um, tie into that. It's pretty abstract, but I think it touches on issues that affect all of our lives. Hmm. Right. It seemed like there was a lot going on there. Mm. It reminds me when you said um, that uh, ownership is one of those things that um, people uh, value a lot. It reminds me of this old old joke I read in a t-shirt, I think. Uh, Don't don't destroy the earth. It's where I keep all my stuff. Yeah. yeah. So ownership is like the conceptual grounding in which people keep all their stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. Like, on one hand, we have this conception of ownership as my stuff, you know, possessions of sentimental um, importance, stuff that is almost part of our selfhood. But then somehow that concept of ownership becomes extended out to, to come back to an earlier example, 
of a house owned by the property mogul that the property mogul has forgotten even owns. So, okay, so this this idea of, of ownership as being like something novel, where does that, where does that begin for you? Where does, where does ownership start in this history? Well, I think that, first of all, I have to sort of do, do my due diligence as a scholar and say that this is kind of a deeply contested topic. And some people will argue, for example, that animals have concepts of ownership. Other people will say that the modern concept of ownership... Uh, doesn't really predate capitalism. Obviously, people thought that they owned things in the pre-capitalist period, but it didn't mean quite the same thing because ownership in our society, it's a whole bundle of rights, for example. It's not just the right to use something. It's the right to exclude others from using it, even if you're not using it. And some people's... And it's the right even if it's been in your family for generations, to, to trade it away for any sum of money you can attain for it, uh, for example. And some people would say that this bundle of rights is actually quite novel. It's, it's something quite new. So what, what people think of as ownership today is different from what people, on this assertion, from what people thought of as ownership before, what, like 18th century, 12th century? What's the, what's the period for you? Well, I think, I think it probably gets phased in, and I think that there are gradual changes in people's concept of ownership. A great example of this is what's called the enclosures in England. So the enclosures were a process whereby land, which had previously been treated as common land, um, to the extent that it was owned at all, it was owned by, you know, a whole village or something like that, uh, was, interestingly enough, through a series of lawsuits, asserted to be the property of single individuals. What sort of individuals? generally quite wealthy individuals. Um, There's an old poem that captures some of the confusion around concepts of ownership at this time, and I I won't quite do it justice, but it goes something along the lines of the law punishes the thief who steals the goose from the commons but leaves intact the greater thief who steals the commons from the goose. (laughs) (laughs) That's a statement of scale. All right, so so this so like different different events in history seem to have uh, what set precedences for different like is it is this is this how press is this like Western precedent law that's like the the fundamental absolutely common law was a very big part of the formation of modern concepts of ownership, particularly around the enclosures. Um, a lot of this stuff was, as I said, litigated in court and um, a lot of arguments were put forward. Um, these arguments range, range from, you know, well, actually, based on these possibly fabricated doc- documents, my family has really held the title to this commons land for generations, to arguments along the lines of, well, what's less important is not, you know... Uh, who owns it as the question of that someone should own it so that they can perform, you know, what, what Locke and other enlightened philosophers referred to as improvement upon the land. Wait, so people would, like, go to judges and effectively say, um, look, this common land working for the whole village. However, think about how good it could be if some individual owned it. There are good reasons for that. Also, I'm an individual. That's a simplification, but... 
some of the cases in my understanding, and I actually haven't looked at the primary literature on this yet. I've only looked at the secondary mm-hmm. literature, but some of the cases had that character, yes. Wow. And then, you know, people were still, people were left destitute by that. And actually, this is kind of, the whole process of enclosing the commons was deeply connected with the origins of capitalism because on one hand, people got this land and then because they were the sole owners, they started paying for improvements to it and, and, and that was part of capitalist accumulation, obviously. But on the other hand, the people who had lived on this land, the people who had survived on it, suddenly had nowhere to grow food and so a lot of them had to go to the cities and they became a cheap labour force. So it was kind of a, a sort of a, a two-pronged win for capitalism. And some people argue that the enclosures were what kicked off capitalism in England in particular. Hmm. Okay. So, I, I, again, there are like a lot of different threads mm. to pull on here, but just like mm. try and stand the... the the stuff that you're doing, like your your mm. particular perspective on ownership. What's your oh, like, novelty? What's your original perspective? Okay, so first of all, let's be clear. I'm, I'm like, I've been in and out of the process of writing the thesis due to various personal events, but if you sum it all up, I'm about three months into it, so may not have all the answers. But with that caveat in mind, um, what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to catalogue all of the different arguments that people have adduced for why certain people should own certain things and other people should be excluded from them. And that's been the initial stage of my thesis, creating a kind of a a grand index of all the arguments that people have given uh, for property rights and also the arguments that people have um, responded with against those. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example... And this is kind of blending several of the arguments together, but you get some people who say, you know, property is the foundation of liberty, right? Um, And then a common rebuttal to that is, well, if property is the foundation of liberty, then look how unevenly distributed liberty is in society. Um, And look at the fact that some people basically have no liberty. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get other arguments. You get arguments from... You know, the the kind of utilitarian, namely a a regime of private property gives people an incentive to improve things, which leads to growth, which is ultimately good for everyone. To the almost fascistic, you get people who are like, there should be private property so that, you know, the strong can be set apart from the weak and so on and so forth. (laughs) I I mean, you laugh, but like people have given all of these arguments at different points. The strong should be set apart from the weak. Sounds like something like a Babylonian freezy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, some of this is actually quite scary stuff. Other of it is quite, I guess, myloquost um, liberalism. Um, it's, it's a very interesting and rich tapestry, particularly because I think for a lot of people, they start with the intuition that people should own property and then they work out a justification from there, which I'm not going to criticise too strongly because let's face it, that's the basis of a lot of moral reasoning. But, start uh, with the status quo, start with what you're familiar with. And then and then try to justify it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting project and I, I think it's one that everyone should be interested in, whether you're ultimately a supporter of private property or not. Okay. Fair. Do you have, like, a, a, a thought experiment that you want the, the kids at home to try? 
Okay, well, we talked once about the Captain Jones thought experiment. Uh, the, 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 the ship? Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ship? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Is that the sort of thing you're looking for? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like Captain Jones. Captain Jones and his crew were sailing in his ship. And through no fault of anyone on the ship, uh, the ship sinks. And they all find themselves on a desert island. Um, now, the thing is, a certain amount of work has to be done every week for the people on that island to create enough food, shelter, so on and so forth, to, to reproduce themselves, to, to stay alive. Um, and let's say, just, just picking a number, let's just say it's 14 hours a week per person. Now, Captain Jones looks at this and he says, well, since all of the tools on the ship belong to me, um, I'm not going to do any work because I've made my contribution to, to the common welfare by allowing you to use my tools. Um, and everyone else says, well, no, you know, I mean, yes, in some sense, in, in the society we were in previously, they were your tools, but it's not exactly as if they're indelibly inscribed with you. I mean, you're just allowing us or permitting us to use these tools. What, why should you have a, a veto over the common good in that way? Um, and I think your intuitions on that case and where you come down on it um, will reflect your views about the plausibility about certain claims to uh, to property rights. So that's how I'd introduce the thought experiment. Now, now, what would you ask about it, Mr. Ike? What would I ask about it? Do you, do you find that people tend to come down in, in clusters of, of response? Well, I will admit the thought experiment was made to make people question the validity of property relations. So a lot of people try to argue that it's disanalogous in some way from property rights in our society. Uh, for example, one argument I've heard is that um, Captain Jones has to allow people access to the tools because even if he didn't cause the accident, in some sense, you know, he, he bears a special responsibility because he was the captain and he sort of has to repay that. Mm. I just respond by saying, well, you can just imagine just as easily that Jones is just one of the passengers who just happened to be carrying a bag of tools with him when the ship sank and, and, and that's his basis for uh, for demanding, uh, what's what's that word, corvée? Corvée. Corvée? Yeah. What's corvée? Uh, it's like a, a feudal Jew, basically. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. A feudal Jew? D-U-E. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> geez, I didn't know that was a category. <laughs> uh, all right. To, um, to, to shift... Uh, in, in the most inelegant of segues, um, what's your view on spirituality and religion in the modern world? You know, I was thinking about this a lot the other day. So it's very interesting, you know, C.S. Lewis was this 20th century Christian writer. I'm not a Christian myself, but for various reasons, I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis. And one of the things he used to rage against um, was the notion of a sort of a a ceremonial religion that's not founded on any belief, but is 
you know, where things like God are just reinterpreted to mean being nice to each other mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And one of C.S. Lewis's criticisms of, of that way of approaching things um, was that it doesn't work. Like, if you have a community of people like that, there'll be a handful of people who stay on because they like the ceremony or whatever. But no one will ever be recruited to that. No one will ever be like, I'm converting to Christianity because I think it's sort of nice uh, to get together in poorly designed buildings (laughs) and kneel on wooden, barely shaped wooden logs for an hour every Sunday. Okay, first of all, how dare you call churches poorly designed? There are a lot of poorly designed churches. Yeah, but like as a category of building, they're like... There are a lot I particularly imagine like the churches of these liberal Christians being oh there are these like community centers like being like uh, what re yeah. re taken or taken for use on Sundays yeah yeah what's the word I'm looking for here uh, repurposed repurposed <laughs> repurposed for use on Sundays yeah um, okay cool so like no one's gonna no one's gonna join uh, a sort of wishy-washy liberal Christian light. It's, yeah. it's impossible to even conceive of that. So I was thinking of Lewis's thoughts on that, and I was thinking about particularly the modern pagan movement, right? Mm-hmm. Where there are a lot of people who, um, you know, uh, profess to worship Thor or um, the Tuthidi Danan or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I started wondering, maybe C.S. Lewis was right that spirituality without genuine religious belief is kind of unstable, but only for Christianity. What if that kind of thing fails specifically for Christianity because Christianity has always been a very cerebral religion with not much in the way of um, ritual or uh, in some ways, I mean, obviously there's a lot of great religious art, but in some ways even aesthetics, particularly I'm talking about the Protestant variation of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I, mm. started, I started wondering, you know, maybe maybe C.S. Lewis was right, but maybe he wasn't right about religion in general. Maybe we're seeing a modern religious revival, which is based around not belief, but ritual and aesthetic. Um and well, that, that's interesting. And I thought also that if that's right, probably Christianity will be on the fade if I'm right about all this because Christianity is very well suited to being a religion of pure belief, but I don't think it actually holds up well as, as a religion of, you know, aesthetics or, or ritual or stuff like that, unless we're talking about high church Anglicanism or, or Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that view is is different from uh, paganism in the sense that like people who are modern pagans, they they can be like doing it ironically but still very invested. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say ironically. I mean, I mentioned aesthetics, and I mean you could make a bit of a joke about it. You could say, look, we've all seen Thor. He was voted People Magazine's sexiest man of two thousand and seventeen. Really? Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Um, hold on, hold on. I just, gotta, I just wanna think for a second about what that says about like the culture in the deepest way. Does that mean in some sense? Oh, they voted. Just to be clear, they voted Chris Hemsworth, not Thor. Not yeah. Thor Schreck, but like in everyone's in everyone's head, they're, they're the same person in, in some profound ways, right? Like they they are familiar with the 
the what do you see the sexist person you said apparently sexist man sexist yeah. man so they're familiar with his sex appeal through his primarily I would say through his role as Thor in the Avengers yeah so in his role as Thor in the Avengers he is like completely unironically actually playing a Norse god yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, when I talk about the aesthetic appeal of pagan religions, this isn't a key part of it. But my point is because they're very visual, they involve, you know, um, very sort of pleasing uh, cosmographies like Yadda's Grail, the Great World Tree and all of that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, that stuff's amazing. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about it. And I've been thinking maybe we're entering an age of religion which is based on aesthetics rather than a religion of belief. Um, and I wonder, I, wonder, I wonder what the impacts of that will be. Do re- so in your mind, religion mm. and aesthetics actually hold up? They survive, as it were? Yeah, I feel like they can survive even if their worshippers don't actually believe in supernatural powers or so on and so forth, or at least are torn about whether they believe in mm. supernatural powers and so could you could Do you have any examples offhand of like, oh, this is an old religion that's like aesthetic-based rather than... Wicca? Wicca's currently um, undergoing a big revival. Um, Asataru. And I think generally there's also this category of people who are sort of playing around with magic... Um, without necessarily sort of believing in it or doing it in a very concrete framework. Like, um, you know, you get a lot of talk about spirit animals and and that sort of thing. Um, It's quite interesting. A lot of talk about, oh, yeah, so, like, that's that's sort of straddling the line for you. Yeah, yeah. So, but, like, all these people who are into Wicca... Mm. My, my guess is they're not into it because they got it from their mothers who got it from their mothers who got it from their mothers. No, no. So in that sense, like, that's... So that's like a... Um, someone... If someone, like, adopts a faith but then can't pass it on to their kids and grandkids, hasn't that failed in exactly the same way as... Well, we don't know if they can't pass it on to their kids or grandkids yet because these things are in a very early... Okay. Yeah. So we'll see if the, if there are wickers in like 2050 who are wickers because they got it hereditarily, then that's yeah a very interesting and strange world. And you're calling that that's is that what you're predicting here? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So I guess just to restate my thesis, I feel like there's a revival of religious elements which are based more on aesthetics than beliefs. Maybe people kind of believe, but not really because they've read too much science but the aesthetics appeal to them. And I'm suggesting that in that environment, you know, Christianity's maybe not going to come up so well. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, what would, what would, it, what would, okay, what would modern spirituality or religion done well look like to you? It's an interesting question. Um, so for myself, um, I'm not actually religious, so it's hard for me to comment because if it were a project I believed in, it would be I, I would already be part of it. But I suppose for myself, I've you know, I would never describe it in terms of a spiritual animal or something like that, but I've always drawn uh, a lot of this is gonna sound very kooky to people who don't know me, but I've always <laughs> drawn a lot of encouragement and satisfaction 
and sense of wonder in nature from from a particular animal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That animal, for anyone who knows me, is the bear. (laughs) Particularly the grizzly or Kodiak bear, but any bear, really. Um, (laughs) What what is it about bears that gets you? uh, I feel like they're the perfect combination of adorable and majestic. They simultaneously max out both bars. Plus, I feel like they've got a lot of good personality traits. They're a lot less, like, fucking never pat a bear in the wild or anything like that. They will kill you, but that said... Um, <laughs> Disclaimer for those listening a lot. They are a lot less vicious than is often made out. You know, the other day I was watching this interesting video of a dog that was repeatedly attacking a bear... And the bear just kept trying to shove it off and keep walking because it didn't, even though this dog was about a tenth its size, it didn't want to just whack the dog for whatever reason. Um, And yeah, I feel like they've got some positive personality traits, uh, you know, curiosity, um, they're good they're good mothers. I was about to say good parents. That's not strictly true. They're good mothers. (laughs) Um, um, And... They're, they kind of combine majesty with adorableness. And they're very smart. Um, they're always trying to find out about the world around them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've always drawn a lot of encouragement from that. And I guess that's they the way that they wave at safari. It's true. Uh, safari they cars? Ha- yeah, they have been filmed waving at safari okay. cars. What are, they, what are they doing when they're waving? Is that actual waving? Uh, so, what's happening? Um, sorry to be a negative Nancy. Ah, you're about to ruin the magic. But what's happened is, is that they've learned that when they make that motion with their hand, right. they get a treat. Simple behavioral condition. Yeah. But, like, how do they, how does the first bear start doing that? Um, there's two possibilities. One is, is that they just, like, do a whole bunch of things all day, and one of them finally happens to do something which corresponds with that. Um, and maybe there's kind of a bit of a build-up or a slope towards that in that stuff that's generally perceived as interacting with humans gets rewarded. The other possibility is what's called, and this is taking me back to my psychology days, but imitation learning. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. So long as it's imitation learning, like I I hold on to the, uh, the, what would you say? The like conviction that is, it is in some sense like, real waving because it's done in dialogue with the people yeah the semantics of animal behavior is very interesting isn't it like when does an animal authentically mean something you know i uh, i would be really interested to like go pop across to the alternate universe where like jean-paul sartre ended up as like a zookeeper <laughs> and this is what consumes him <laughs> all right we we the hippopotamus why does he hide from the sun is it a purely physiological need? Or does it feel a certain disgust with itself? Oh. You know, that would, like, explain a lot about hippo behavior. Well, I mean, why are they always attacking people? It could be low self-esteem issues. Because they don't even, like, they don't actually eat people, but they do kill them, like, a lot. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's like, stop fucking looking at me, I know I'm ugly. 
Wow, it could be that. I, I say this, but, you know, I say it with a, a sad heart because hippopotamuses are actually my second favorite animal. Really? Yes. Yeah. They're second favorite? Yeah. Yeah. Is it because they're easy to draw? Uh, that might have attracted me when I was a child, but I've always liked hippos. I've always particularly liked baby hippos. Uh, do yourself a favor if you're listening, by the way, Google Fiona the hippo. Fiona the hippo. That's the recommendation. All right. But baby hippos are, yes, I think I've seen a few and they're adorable. But like adult hippos, they will just, I, what is it? What's the fact? They're quite they're cute. Kill? They're quite cute though, aren't they? Even the adults that... I, Have you ever seen an adult hippo nuzzling someone? It's very cute. Yeah, but that, that's got to be like the contrast, like of, of, of what of the great power of the beast with the great tenderness. That's always cute. Well, that's what you people do so well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You are assign Americans. I mean, I think I think you're you're coming back to a point that my father's often made, which is that I seem to be uh, attracted to things in proportion to how lethal they are. Um, wow. And, uh, any single gentleman out there, just so we're clear, that's uh, purely a description of my taste in animals, not, oh not people. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for making that clear. Hold on. So bear's number one, hippo's number two. Uh, I need one more data point. What's your third? Uh, probably dogs. Which are only medium on the lethality scale. I think, yeah. I think like... Dogs it's not mosquitoes or anything. No, that would no. be... <laughs> Come on. Dogs are... Um, I think dogs are like a very... Dog, dog lethality is like a very cultural thing. So like for us right now in like the West where most dogs are like... Bleep, 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 bleeps. Fine. But, you know, in the, in the sort of release the hounds world... Yeah. You know, yeah. they're pretty lethal creatures. I mean... <laughs> I guess this this come we we form a great circle back to the questions of property, don't we? You know, I mean, <laughs> okay, go on. How do you get it is the sounds in a society? Well, I mean, I, I always think of you know the hound as the perfect symbol of uh, th- this is just me talking out of my posterior, of course. But sure. I al- I always think of dogs as a sort of perfect symbol or or metonym for the absentee owner who owns a thing even though he may not be present and feels this confidence in his ownership that he's willing to to leave a representative um even if that representative talks only with its teeth you know there's there's something quite perfect about this like i believe the idea of you know the loyal hound who protects the owner's property um I could be wrong about this, but I think you actually do start to see some of it pop up more around the period of the enclosures. The few cases in literature I'm thinking from are not in medieval literature. They're in, in the 1600s in this enclosures period. I don't know. This is really Further research, research no. is required. Is, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I like that you just like went through your internal index. It's like, H, uh, Horror, honor, hounds. Yeah, this is what we know on hounds, right? <laughs> the relationship to profit, the development of the concept of ownership. But yeah. like, th- this is really interesting what you're saying. Um, I'm, because I, I, start, I stopped thinking about Mr. Burns from The Simpsons partway through that, and I started thinking about um, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire, like the world of Game of Thrones. Mm. You have like the Lannisters who are the 
what the the uh, pinnacle of like wealth as wealth as power is sitting there in the westerns and um their big uh political representation is is the Cleganes, who are um symbolized by the hound and moreover by um the Can being that speaks only with its teeth right yeah the being that speaks only with its teeth yeah it's it's there's a sort of like um there is this recurring image of like the rich man who protects his property with hounds. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's partly like what I'm talking about is like a Gilded Age thing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's definitely something you can imagine from like the great Gatsby. You know? Yeah, either. Daisy wandered onto the property and was... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If a hound attacks someone in the Great Gatsby, like this is a reasonable scene for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like it would be more reasonable in England than America, but I can't justify that intuition. Ah, we could probably put together something cockamamie. But but um, the other thing that, that gets me about this is just just trying to imagine it through, right? Like, let's say you're living in a village and everyone sort of farms all the land around the village. Yeah. And then one day the landowner's like. The landowner. One day, like someone, the some uh, the the baron who lives on the hill, like yeah. petitions the court. It's like, in fact, these are my baronial lands, and all these people should pay me for the use of this land or whatever. Yeah, which is exactly what happened. You say it in the satire voice, but that is exactly what happened. Right. I'm, I'm paying attention. <laughs> Hold on. So the 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 baron says this, and then then you have like this whole like layer of of. Uh, discontent and, and like maybe even political intrigue where the villagers are like we're not gonna stand for this it's like calm down we'll sit down it's the law we I can to. hear the pitchforks yeah so alright so then you move to pitchfork state now what's interesting here is that at that point I don't know if this is what actually this, happened this, historically yeah there absolutely were sometimes quite uh, martial struggles over over the enclosures and, and people's sense that something had been stolen from them by the courts and, and by the lords who, let's face it, like a lot of the early capitalists were just feudal lords who, who jumped, basically. Yeah. So, so you're not wrong. So go on, go on, go okay, on. Okay. So at this point, right, you've got, let's say you're, uh, you, you're playing the part of Dr. Frankenstein here. It's like, they're coming for your monster. And so the villagers are coming. Um, so your options here are kind of respond with like your own force, in which case it's like it's very ugly. Respond like calling the government to respond with force, in which case it's suddenly like a rebellion, like it's legitimized in some weird way. And, like look what the government is doing. But then like the other alternative is like just have dogs because like the being that speaks only with its teeth, it doesn't doesn't fight back in a way that like morally. Uh, recognizes or denies your claim it just has the teeth and there is actually there's this kind of tradition which i think is you know anachronistic and it's imposing human values on dogs and whatever i think dogs are good boys personally very good boys but and girls for dogs so inclined but there is this kind of uh tradition or idea of the dog as like the perfect capitalist you know there's this idea that they're like peculiarly territorial and hierarchical creatures Mm. um you know that's really interesting and and just i just i just want to emphasize that listeners should not take this bit serious historical work I'm like that bit I actually I think I can put together a piece of the puzzle there which is like the domestication of dogs has been 
possibly the single most successful domestication project that humans have ever undertaken. And like what that means, practically Some people speaking, would say that the most successful domestication product ever undertaken by humans was of humans. <laughs> but sorry, I was rude. <laughs> I, I, um, if I hadn't already heard that line, I would be duly shocked. <laughs> I thought it's, it's, an, it's a mind blower. But um, the dog thing, the dog doesn't make it, after humans, dogs are probably number two domestication project. And like part of what that means is they're very good at understanding existing power structures and conforming to them. So in the age of like the aristocracy, the hound was the loyal huntsman. And in the age of like what the capitalist, I suppose he just shifted perfectly to the the protector of the lord's property. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right, and I think we a lot of it is probably just projecting like these. I don't know what actually goes through a dog's head, but I think it's something along the lines of good master, master give me pats, master give me scratches, master give me food, I love master, protect master. Mm. And and that can be mapped onto, you know, any any set of property relations. Mm. I, 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 yeah, so that that's basically it, right? That I that I'm Master good, I, I follow master. That's like ultimate conformity to like whatever apparatus is already in place in some sense. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Because there, there's a um, there's a story. I think it's of the Buddha. I'm trying to remember it. The story where it's the guy's like um, someone comes to the Buddha and tells him a story. It says there was a a wealthy landowner in the next town, um, and uh, the he was very hated. And the people of the village decided to go and kill him. And so they, um, they gathered together in a mob and attacked. And uh, he fled with his retainer. And as they crossed a bridge, the retainer turned around and held off the um, villagers for enough time to his master, for his master to escape while they killed the retainer. Mm. And if I recall correctly, the Buddha, upon hearing this story says such a sad tale so much suffering only one good man and that there's so many levels to that that I try to unpack at the same time but there's something like archetypal about the person who is like nothing made of nothing but loyalty and dogs seem to be that you know it's interesting um it reminds me of a quote by, I think, Brett, uh, who was talking about this particular story with the Buddha. And he looked at this and, and he said, look, obviously peasants at that time, most of their stories don't really come down to us. They're not really recorded. So we don't know what a peasant might have said in defense of themselves against the Buddha's implicit criticism. But here's one thing they might have said. They might have said, well, if that landlord had have escaped, which unfortunately from their perspective he did. He would come back in a year or two uh, with support, more retainers, they would have swords, and they would reimpose the system of cruel rents which the, the landlord had previously had in place that would continue sucking you know, the, the people of that area dry. Um, their children would die. Um, in the bad years, um, even in the good years, 
they wouldn't have enough to eat um, relative to what they would have liked. Uh, they wouldn't have had any financial security. So I guess, I guess the point I'm making is it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, we don't hear those stories. We don't hear that because we always focus on violence, which is obvious and flashy. The peasants killing uh, the retainer as the master flees. Mm-hmm. But we forget about the implicit violence, the violence which was there all along until the peasants acted against this allegedly tyrannical landlord, the violence of starvation, the violence of economic insecurity that's ultimately real violence because it's extracted from them with real weapons. Um, If they didn't comply, I've got no doubt that this landlord made them suffer for it. Do you have uh, a closing, in closing, like a, a vision of a better world? A vision of a better world. You know, I used to think I knew what a better world would be like. I thought that a better world would definitely be one in which, I guess, everyone owned all things in common. As I've gotten older, I've become more skeptical of this. I will say this, though. I think that a better world would definitely be a world in which any system of production that existed would have to answer at every single point this question. Are you really serving human needs? Timothy Scriven, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.